Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Reverence by Pastor Sean Wood. Let's pray as we prepare to come around God's Word. Father, we, we are so thankful for your Word, so thankful for the freedom we have at this present second to, to, to come around your Word, to speak your Word, and for your Word to saturate into our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we would have eyes to see this morning in your wonderful name. Amen. This morning, uh, we finish our short series on the root of the righteous. And we began that last year. It was the last Sunday of last year. But we started to look at uh, our outer life is the effect and is the fruit of our inner life. And so how do we cultivate an inner life that affects the outer life? When we have a look at some of the heroes of faith, maybe if we have a look at some of the heroes in scripture, which we will do today, we often see their great exploits and what God did through them. And we can forget that that is backed up. If you could pull the curtain back, it's backed up by an inner life. Uh, a strong root. Uh, and so we've had a look at some of those things. Uh, last year, we looked at resolve and what it means to make up our mind and remove double-mindedness. We've looked at resilience. What does it mean to be resilient? What does it mean, interesting, uh, those uh, that often did great things for the Lord and we use mightily had a posture of rest. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon says that the, the sovereignty of God is the pillow that I lay my head on. And what he means is God's got it. And we can often become worryful and anxious about the affairs of life. And Jesus asks us and urges us to adopt a posture of rest. And the last one, the most important one, is reverence. Today, I'd like to take you on a journey clarifying today, your distance is determined by your reverence. How close you are to the Lord or how distant you are from the Lord is determined by how reverent you are or how irreverent you are. Today, let's answer the question, what do we mean by reverence? Let's have a look at a couple of examples of irreverence and what happened there and what it is, a couple of examples of what it is to live in reverence. Has anybody ever heard the name Timothy Treadwell? No. Timothy Treadwell, let me, I, I stumbled across his name in recent times and I went and studied an interesting guy, uh, not a Christian, but Timothy Treadwell uh, was a grizzly bear enthusiast. He lived in California and every year he would travel to Alaska and camp at a place called the Big Green, which was full of grizzly bears. Now, we often think bears, we think cuddly teddy bears we put at the end of our bed. Don't go and shake hands with the grizzly bears in Alaska. It's probably not a good idea. But Timothy Treadwell was an environmental activist and he had a passion for grizzly bears. And uh, a leading ecologist was looking at the work of Timothy Treadwell and said, this guy's crossing enormous boundaries. Uh, he's crossing boundaries when it comes to distance and approaching grizzly bears. He's, he's, a, he's crossing boundaries when it comes to things like the natural process and, and harassing nature. And, and he was highlighting that there were some dangers there. If you have a look at some of the footage, you can look it up. There's YouTube footage of Timothy Treadwell. He's right up close and next to these grizzly bears while they're eating. He, he knew them by name, uh, but he made one massive error. He became complacent. He became comfortable. 
Timothy Treadwell, tragically, in the year of 2003, late September, he was camping on the Big Green with his girlfriend at the time. She was uneasy. Didn't like grizzly bears. I wonder why. Didn't like grizzly bears. Uh, uh, but some new bears had roamed on, bears they didn't know. Uh, they were more aggressive this year than they had been in the past. And, and they said, let's just get out of here. So the end of September, they make their way to the airport at Kodiak and they have a fight with a pilot trying to overcharge them and in the end they book a plane to pick them up a week later from the campsite and they hike back in to the campsite. October the 5th 2003 Timothy Treadwell phones a friend in California says hey listen everything's going all right I've got a plane picking us up in the morning I'll see you when I get home. The pilot arrived on the 6th of October walked into the camp and found grizzly bears walking through the camp immediately got in the plane and left, rang the park ranger, who would later discover the grisly remains of Timothy Treadwell and his girlfriend. Timothy Treadwell had become complacent. They found video footage of him just metres away from a bear that was eating by the river. And tragically, although there's no footage they uncovered a camera with sound of Timothy and his girlfriend's final moments as the bears came into the camp. He made a mistake. He became complacent. He became irreverent. He forgot he was dealing with unmanageable, uncontrollable wild animals that could tear you limb for limb in the blink of an eye. (coughs) Friends, God is that grizzly bear. God is loving, yes. He's kind and merciful, yes. But he sent his son to the cross to take away our sin because he is and his holiness will consume us if we are clothed in our sin. He is a holy, holy, holy God and he doesn't play games and he's not here to be trifled with. And men and women who understood that in the years past have had such a wonderful relationship with God. The psalmist said, friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. We live in an age today where people are acquiring knowledge and they think they know everything. But what does Proverbs teach us? That the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, a reverent posture of life that says, I am a created being. I'm not God. I'm going to make you a guarantee today. God exists and you are not him. So let's have a look at a couple of examples where people got this wrong. Let's look at a couple of examples of what it looks like. But what do we mean by reverence? What does the Bible mean by reverence? We might, uh, you could use the term the fear of the Lord. It's not afraid of God. It's not running and hiding behind a tree. You, You might use the word fear. You might use the word reverence. You might use the word respect. 
You might use the word honour. You might use the word awe. Uh, the book of Acts, which we will uh, begin a series on later in this year, the book of Acts says things like, and the believers were filled with great awe and the Lord added to their number daily. We see that the first church had a posture of awe and reverence for God. Two people forgot that, Ananias and Sapphira, and they were carried out. The greater the revelation, the greater the reverence that is required of us. Reverence is being cautious. Uh, the psalmist would say, I have set your face before me at all times. It's, uh, I remember when I was at the casino, you cannot move at the country club casino in Tasmania. You cannot take one step without being seen on camera. So advanced are the cameras that when you get out of your car in the car park, the security can press a button to flag your face and everywhere you go, a, 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 an alarm goes off to say where you are. You can't go anywhere. I learnt this lesson the horrible way. I remember when I was in the storeroom, I would cart goods onto the main floor and I'd have to go up through the elevator. And when I was in the elevator, before I'd get to the main floor, I'd quickly fix my pants and my shirt and out I'd go onto the floor and security rang me one night and said, you know we have cameras in the elevator. <laughs> but it changed my behaviour. I went to the bathroom. <laughs> when you know someone's watching, it changes your behaviour, right? The fear of the Lord is having that relationship with him, knowing that he's always watching his presence is everywhere. It, it affects our outer life. Let's have a look at a couple of guys. We, we may have known uh, some of these instances from the past. What did they do wrong and what does irreverence look like? Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, and most people say of the book of Leviticus, you know what, you could probably take that out of the Bible and we'd be okay. Uh, for those that begin their reading plan, uh, some people get to the new year and they make a resolve, I'm going to read my Bible from front to back and often get to Leviticus and die a slow, painful death. <laughs> But the book of Leviticus is actually wonderful because what happens is uh, Genesis is all about the beginnings. Exodus is all about God revealing himself and giving us the law. And then Leviticus is all about how we treat God in worship. And God stipulated worship. And if you have, a, if you read through the book of Leviticus, you know, uh, the priests had to touch their, their, their right thumb on their left ear. Everything was kind of in, in order. God has order. And what we read in chapter 10 of Leviticus is that after seven days of consecration, uh, the priests were ready to begin their service. Uh, God had told them what worship was to look like. He had handed down. The implements were all created of gold. There's a message in that about the purity. Everything before God, God has to be refined and it has to be pure. And, and God had set out all these mandates. And then we have two cowboys that decide we're going to do things our way. Let's have a read of what happens. Leviticus chapter 10. Verse 1, uh, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offer, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Uh, now the term unauthorized fire, there's a lot of speculation about what that actually means. Uh, did they grab fire from a different place inside the temple? But the greatest evidence leans towards Nadab and Abihu decided, we're going to worship God, yes, we're going to do things this way, yes, but we're also going to incorporate some of the pagan practices as we're worshiping God. We're going we're to do worship our way. 
as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And so, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And here we see God is not to be played with. God is not to be trifled with. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. If anybody is going to be near me, here's what uh, Moses is iterating or reiterating, if you like, to Aaron. Anybody who's going to serve God, anybody who is going to be close to God, anybody who is going to uh, inhabit a place in the presence of God, for those people I must be sanctified. That's a powerful word. It's a powerful term. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 encourages us all to sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord in our hearts. Sanctify him as holy in our hearts. We've used this term before. We've spoken about it before. But whenever you sanctify something, you are setting it apart. Whenever you sanctify something or somebody as holy, what you're doing is you're taking something that is very common and ordinary and you're moving it to the place of the very special. Now, we've seen probably in an earthly sense, we see what this can look like sometimes in some respects. Uh, I remember watching a... um I remember watching a show about a pawnbroker in, in the United States and a guy walks in with a guitar. I couldn't even tell you what the brand of the guitar was. I couldn't tell you how many strings were on there. I don't know anything about guitars. But this guy walked in and says, I want to sell my guitar. And the guy says, how much do you want for it? And he says, $100,000. Crazy. Immediately my mind goes, do you know how many flywoods you could buy for that? <laughs> But it turns out this is no ordinary guitar. Turns out this guitar is some kind of Les Paul thing, I don't know, that apparently Bob Marley played and he had paperwork to prove that this was kind of something that Bob Marley had... I don't even really know much about Bob Marley except the fact that he could do with washing his hair every once in a while. I don't know a whole lot about Bob Marley, but I know that guy got over 100 grand for that guitar. And what made that guitar special weren't the strings, weren't the timber necessarily, it was the fact that Bob Marley had touched it. It was sanctified. It was other than. And you should have seen everybody that was looking at this guitar. They asked a guy from a music shop down the road to come and authenticate this guitar. And this guy's like worshipping this guitar almost. You know, he's got too many tattoos and earrings everywhere, but he's worshipping this guitar. To me, it's a cricket bat. But we begin to see, for those that are going to be close to the Lord, you don't look at that guitar. When you look at God, you don't see a cricket bat. You see something very special. You give me a guitar, it'll be the most glorious five minutes of your life. But you give somebody like Bob Marley a guitar. And Nadab and Abihu, they forgot who they were dealing with. They did a Timothy Treadwell. They thought, we'll do worship our way. We'll cross the boundaries. We'll be loose with the boundaries. That's why these things matter. That's why worship matters. 
That's why we do communion every week, and that's why we do it the way we do it, because it's holy, it's consecrated, the Lord set it apart, it's, it's holy. We don't, we don't mess with the emblems. We don't come in here and have pizza and beer, and there's a reason for that, because Jesus took something very special, and he made it holy and consecrated. That's, that's why we do what we do. That's, that's why last year we parted from a denomination that said, we want to change holy matrimony. See, God took weddings and marriage, and he said, this is holy. This is other than, this isn't like all your other relationships. This isn't like the guys you go fishing with or play golf with. This is a very special relationship. Inside the framework of this relationship exists some very special blessings. But the reality is, it's holy. And and we live in a time today when everybody wants to pull that down and say, it won't be long, mark my words, friends, it won't be long before ladies and men are walking down the aisle with their goat to get married. It won't be long. Once you tip over the edge, first century Rome, Nero castrated his servant so he could marry her. Him, it. One of the emperors married his horse. Nothing new under the sun. But when you pull down, you're only left with a reverence. May the Lord have mercy. May the Lord have mercy. Here's another one that Often I get asked, actually get asked about this quite often. Go by the name of Uzzah. Anybody ever heard of Uzzah? Uh, well, you can read about him in Second Samuel, but we're going to have a look at the uh, Uzzah. It looks like the reason is it looks like Uzzah's doing a good thing, and then he kind of gets punished for it. I don't know if anybody knows the story, uh, but uh, Uzzah. Basically, what's happened is uh, the Philistines took the ark, uh, which is, by the way, the glorious presence and manifest Shekinah glory presence of the Almighty God. The Philistines took that and they took that into their camp and something happened. All of their idols kept falling over. Oh, what's going on here? They, they got Dagon, interest sermon for another day, but they got Dagon kept falling over and then they kept putting him back up and then one day they walked in and he'd fallen over and his head had fallen off and his arms were broken. There's a message in that, friends. If you want to challenge the gods of this culture, we need the presence of God. They will fall. And so the Philistines are like, I don't know what we've got to do, but we've got to get rid of this thing because we're growing lumps in places. We've never had lumps, and we just need to get rid of whatever this is. So they, they try to get rid of it. And, and then we come to a place where David had always wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. King David, good guy, righteous guy, holy guy. And so David's, uh, what we know about David up until this point, even the chapter before, is before David does anything, it says David inquired of the Lord. But not this time. David decides, I want to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, you can read it later if you want. In verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. Other translations translate it beautifully uh, when it says, David conferred with all of his officials. I want to bring the ark, the presence of God, back into Jerusalem. So this is what I'm going to do. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And what do they do? And they carried the ark on a new cart. So what happens here is David says, I want to take the, the presence of God and the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. So I'm going to chuck it on the back of an ox cart. 
and walk it back into Jerusalem. And what would happen is you'd have oxen at the front pulling like a, a cart at the back and guys walking alongside the load trying to keep all the load. So that's what's happening here. And we look at that and we go, well, that's okay. It was a new cart, right? But what does David think he's doing? What does David think he's dealing with? Who does David think he's dealing with? If you peel back the layers and go back far enough, you'll actually find, you ask yourself the question, why would David put it on an ox cart? Well, this was customary amongst the Philistines. It was a customary practice that they would chuck their gods... This is how they would do it. Well, we'll do it how everybody else does it. No, we will not worship God how everybody else worships. No way. And here's the result, young Uzzah. So we've got a problem before we even start. Come down to verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines. Everything seems to be going well, right? And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of, the, took hold of it for the oxen had stumbled. And what happens here, the ox stumbled, the cart rocks, and Uzzah puts out his hand to grab hold of the And who does he think he is? Here's where the problems begin. In Numbers chapter 4, God had stipulated that whenever you transport the Ark of the Covenant, it is to be transported by Levites on gold-covered poles on the shoulders of the priests and the Levites. Not chucked on the back of an ox cart. What man is there that thinks they can handle and manage and control the presence of God? That's what David's problem was. If we read on, (coughs) excuse me, David becomes... And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah and that place is called Perusa to this day. And here's what David does. Uh, David is angry because all of a sudden he realises, this is the greatest lesson in David's life, he realises, I can't manage and control this God. In the blink of an eye, David realises, I'm not the one managing God. He's the one managing me. I can't control him. A bit like that grizzly bear. When we lose our reverence. And here's what David does. <laughs> so David was afraid of the Lord that day. He was afraid. He's like, I don't David's mind is going, who on earth can host? So here's what they do. How can, the, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So here's basically what David does. Uh, we, we can't control this God. He has broken out against Uzzah. Let's send it to a Gittite bloke and see how he goes. And he does just okay. He's blessed. Yeah. The Lamb of the Almighty God that was slain is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I remember listening to a story. Uh, uh, somebody I know had friends that had travelled through Africa and, of course, they went to Africa and they decided they wanted to go on all the safaris and have a look at the wildlife. 
when they got out of the cities, you'll appreciate that, and when they got out of the cities and looked at the other wildlife, uh, they were on safari and the tour guide said to them, said, look, the lions don't see any danger or any threat in a car. They, they see the shape of the car. So here's what they were told. They were told uh, when you're on safari, you can take photos, but no dangling limbs outside and no standing up. And this guy says they were travelling and they came to a herd of lions and they're all eating. Uh, the, the old fellow with the mane, he's eating, everybody's happy. And then there was a gentleman in the back that stood up to take a photo and he said the male lion just looked like that and stopped eating. He said in a heartbeat, the tour guide just put the car in gear, told the guy to sit down and said we're out of here. Don't muck around. Some lions don't have to roar. The Apostle John spent three years with Jesus. The Apostle John was on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle John (coughs) is known as the beloved disciple. But what he sees in Revelation says, I fell down like a dead man. Excuse me a moment, I need some water. Is it? Wonderful. The lamb that was slain, <coughs> pardon me, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, as we move on, let's ask ourselves the question, what does reverence look like? There's two examples I want to give as we bring this to a conclusion. <coughs> pardon me again. The first one is a guy by the name of Noah. Now, most of us know about Noah, and most of us know that uh, Noah builds an ark, and I know some people in Queensland, outback Queensland in particular, are probably preparing an ark right now. But the interesting thing is that what Hebrews 11 tells us about Noah is that Noah, in reverent fear, prepared an ark. And... Noah, imagine being Noah, God comes to Noah, it doesn't rain, he's not living anywhere near the coast, and God says, build an ark, for I'm going to send a flood, so Noah begins to build an ark, and the whole story in Genesis chapter 6 is speaking about the evil of the times, it's speaking about an evil generation, and then we reach, but Noah. (coughs) But one man who had a different relationship with God. But Noah, we read in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, what we know about Noah, there's not a whole lot that's told of us, but in the New Testament, they reference Noah as a herald of righteousness. And we, uh, to be a herald is to be a preacher, but we don't see any evidence that Noah was preaching or, or that he decided to get up on his soapbox and say anything. But in fact, the life that he lived was preaching a message to everybody else. Uh, to an evil generation at that point in time, Noah is living a life that is preaching a sermon to them. I'm going God's way. I'm going to live for God. He had a different heart. He had a different posture of life. He's the only one that is saved. Uh, Imagine Noah building an ark for 120 years at the jeers and the comments from everybody, but they were silenced. They were silenced when the springs burst forth. (coughs) Pardon me. And so Noah, with a posture of reverence, C.H. Spurgeon, speaking about Noah, says, 
in his generation, we don't need to go around telling everybody about all the bends in their stick. If somebody's got a bend in their stick, you don't need to tell them. He says, all you need to do is lay a straight stick next to it. (coughs) Pardon me. And so C.A. Spurgeon says of Noah, he was a herald of righteousness just by the life that he lived. In reverent fear, Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Excuse me. The last one I want to look at, and we've looked at this one a few times. The last one is a very special chapter in Genesis. (coughs) In Genesis chapter 22, something very profound happens. God has established a covenant with Abraham. God has honoured his promises to bring Isaac. And so now we have Abraham has everything he ever wanted. Abraham has what God had promised him. Abraham has the blessed seed that was given to him in his old age and he has Isaac. And then God comes and says to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him. But what we read that is profound was Abraham's response. It says early the next morning he arose. It doesn't mean that he rang the elders. He didn't hold a prayer meeting. He didn't wonder whether he'd heard from God. He obeyed God's word. You see, if you were talking to Noah and if you were talking to Abraham, maybe he would say, Noah, how could you spend all that time building a boat? Uh, Abraham, how could you possibly walk your son up that mountain? And both of them would say, how could we not? I'm still waiting for the day the Lord says, take your sons It's biblical. But put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a moment. It's a three day journey to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is a very interesting place. One man would walk his son up Mount Moriah and would walk back down. Some thousands of years later, Almighty God would walk his son up exactly the same mountain. Here's what, here's what God says to Abraham. I, I find this verse amazing for what it displays about God. We, what we know is God comes to Abraham to test his heart and to see whether Isaac has a more prominent place in his heart than God. God does not share the throne in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, I I don't know, uh, if you come for a drive with me, wherever myself and my wife go, I'm always in the driver's seat, just because of safety and and convenience. (coughs) Hey, she's not here. I can... But when it comes to Christ, he doesn't share the driver's seat. He comes to Abraham to test his heart. And Abraham walks his son up the mountain. He says to everybody something very interesting. Abraham says, me and the lad are going to worship and we will return. I thought that was amazing. 
Abraham knows he's coming back. One way or another, I'm bringing Isaac back. I can't work it out. It doesn't make logical sense what God's asking me to do. I'm not sure if anybody's ever been in that place, but sometimes God asks you to do irrational and illogical things. But but what reverence does, what a posture of reverence does, just like Noah, it says, I'm just going to do what God told me to do. I'm not going to listen to what everybody else says. It may not make sense. I'm just going to do what God has told me to do. And here's what God says. After he provides a lamb, uh, verse 12 of chapter 22, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know. Wow. For now I know I have tested your heart, and for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your only son. As we bring this to a close, the question I have for everybody here this morning is, Do you have Isaacs in your heart? You see, God does not take Isaacs from our hearts. They must be given. And a posture of reverence looks like I will move God from the very commonplace into the very special place in my life. And in my heart, that's what happens here. God now knows that he has the number one place in Abraham's heart. I'm going to ask four questions this morning as we bring this to a close. Four questions that I hope the Holy Spirit will use to shine a light on every one of our hearts. First question is, As we search our hearts, we ask ourselves the questions, do I have any Isaacs in my hearts? Do I have anything in my life that I hold greater value than you? Is there anything that I'm putting before you? And and here's four questions. Uh, Is what you value, whatever is in your heart, is God what you value most? Now, the spiritual reflex is to answer that question, of course. But is God what we value the most? Is what uh, any Isaac in our heart would be anything that you hate to lose the most? Uh, I was reminded, uh, I've been reading recently the book of Job, which is an interesting book, but it's what it sums up is Job lost everything, but he still seemingly had everything. How does a man, in chapter 2 of Job, how does a man who has just lost all of his wealth and just lost so much turn to his wife and say, is it right for us to expect blessing from God and not cursing also? Is it right for us? Real faith, real faith, isn't getting what you want from God. Real faith says, I will worship you no matter what happens. I will worship you no matter what happens. 
Whatever you value the most in your heart, whatever you value the most in your life is what your thoughts will turn to most frequently when you're free to think whatever you want. Uh, this is a real challenge. I remember Tozer writes a whole chapter uh, on thought life, but it's an interesting challenge to think about as you go throughout your day, whenever you're driving in the car, whenever you're out walking maybe, where does our mind immediately go? Where do we give our attention? Where do we give our thoughts? If you want to sum up the word worship, you could sum it up with the word attention. But where does our mind immediately go? And here's the last one. To ask ourselves the question, what is it that gives us the greatest pleasure? I love the words of John Piper. John Piper writes a book on Christian hedonism. Profound book. John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When he is our greatest pleasure, when he is our greatest delight, when he holds the most prominent place in our heart and in our life, he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. As I bring this to a close this morning, I ask this question. Do you have anything in your heart? Do you have anything in your life? If there was one thing you could put down today that you knew would bring you closer to God, what's stopping you? If there was one thing you could pick up in your life today that you knew would bring you closer to God, then what is stopping? Father, as we come to a close, I pray this prayer, I've mentioned it before, and I pray this prayer, Lord, I pray that you would sanctify yourself as holy in every single one of our hearts. Just as that song says, you're calling us deeper, you're calling us deeper, you're calling us deeper, but Lord, I pray that we would move you in every area of our life, that we would move you from the common and the ordinary to the very special. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach every one of us reverence. May we behold you in your holiness and in awe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.